This is a conversation with Dr. Keto Swan of Indiana University on the life of black scientist and revolutionary Palu Kamarakafego and his quest to decolonialize science across the Black Atlantic, the Black Pacific, and Africa. We discuss with Dr. Swan how his studies into the Black Pacific are both in dialogue with and separate from the more well-known studies of the Black Atlantic, why Palu's quest to decolonize science and spread scientific knowledge was viewed as such a threat by nations like the U.S., the U.K., and other settler colonies and imperialists, and what lessons we can learn from Palu's legacy today in a world where we most associate black science with either figures like a Ben Carson or movies like a Black Panther. Wakanda this is not. And through talking with Dr. Swan, we discuss in detail the importance of continuing Palu's work in decolonizing science today. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. And for print interviews, you can read conversations on asiaarttours.com. I'm Keto Swan, and I am professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. So, Keto, we'll be talking about your work today, in particular, uh, Palu's diaspora, about a pretty amazing singular figure in the history of global organizing. Um, to start, though, you know, very broadly, we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, in reading your work, what I've come to call the Black Pacific. Um to start with a question that is is kind of broad, but I think interesting, most UK US listeners are going to know the Black Atlantic. You know, Marcus Redeker, Paul Gilroy, Christine Sharp, and others who've written about um, this concept of the Black Atlantic as a as a framework for their studies. Um, how has their writing about the Black Atlantic influenced your own work on the Black Pacific? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. I think each of the works are really important in terms of um, what archives are, you know, who is worthy of study, roots, routes, music, gender, connections to Africa, uh, connections with the Americas, the ocean as, as a site of, of, of discourse and, and, and transformation and oppression of African people. Uh, but, but to be honest, you know, I, I come from a school of thought around a, a vision of the African diaspora that was framed as a discipline, a study by Joseph E. Harris at Howard University, who establishes African diaspora studies as a discipline in the 1960s, in the midst of black freedom struggles, uh, African movements for decolonization. And He's at a conference of African historians in Tanzania, which is, you know, a critical site for Pan-African thought um, and African liberation struggles. And when, when diaspora is founded as a field, um, it's global in scope. Uh, Harris's first books were about the African diaspora in Asia and the Middle East. And so while diaspora took 
diaspora studies took the Atlantic and the experience of the Americas very seriously. Uh, of course, um, the Atlantic slave trade is, is critical in terms of the creation of the modern diasporas um, and modern day capitalism. At the same time, for me, you know, diaspora was always a global, my, my approach to the study of the African diaspora was always global. Um, and so, you know, my focus on the Black Pacific, to be honest, is not so much a challenge to the academic framework of a Black Atlantic, which I think has to some extent marginalized some of these Pacific discussions, is really about, for me, how Oceania resisted a white Pacific uh, and resisted white domination and colonization around people who were, who were racialized and genderized as being Black and Brown. Uh, I would also just add that some of my studies of the Atlantic, to be honest, have also been influenced by scholars of the Pacific and Pacific studies scholars like Leo Kavaka, who talks a lot about births, uh, physical births, but also conceptual births, which she describes as being real spaces influenced by geography uh, and holding memories of departure and homecomings crossings that are not simply routes or routes, but spaces of reciprocal exchange that can change, create, maintain relationships over distance and time. So for me, part of my development of a scholar of, of the Black diaspora has also been influenced by uh, Pacific Studies scholars and the study of the Pacific in general. I'm gonna read just a very quick quote here of the primary book we'll be discussing today, Paolo's Diaspora. You wrote this book as Quote, a political narrative of 20th century black internationalism logistically anchored by Kamara Fagel's globetrotting activism. In researching uh, the Black Pacific and some of the figures we'll be talking about today, how have you reflected on this debate internally as a scholar of, do I want to write about the great men and women of history, or is it more about something collective and anti-celebrity, if, if you want to use my framework for it? No, I, I think that's a great, that's a great, uh, a great question. Um, you know, on the one hand, Paulo is one of those individuals where if you were to walk the streets of Bermuda and ask folks about ruse, which is what he was colloquially known as in Bermuda, you will get a ton of responses. Uh, right now, Paulo is an African hero. But this takes place, um, you know, after his death and under the leadership of Bermuda's first black political party. But while he was alive and while Bermuda was under a party known as United Bermuda Party that was very much the, the party of Bermuda's uh, white elite, Paulo was public enemy number one. Um, he couldn't find a job in Bermuda was really ostracized. Uh, if you travel to places like Guanajuato, you will, and you mention Paulo's name, whether it's in the halls of, of parliament or in small villages um, around Guanajuato, Paulo was still a remembered figure through the oral tradition, but also because he worked with his hands, um, some of his designs around building water tanks from bamboo, 
uh, homes made out of bamboo, you might still see some of these structures. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, when it came to academia, uh, Paolo is mentioned, he makes these cameo appearances in you know, scholarship on black power. There were fleeting mentions of his involvement with the Sixth Pan-African Congress, but nothing really substantial. So I had that challenge, right? The challenge was Paolo himself uh, would rather decenter himself um, and focus on the communities that he worked with, grassroots communities that he worked with. But at the same time, um, how do I write a book about someone who hasn't really been written about before and not, <laughs> not just focus on the great big man narrative? And I thought the best approach was to think about the communities that he worked with as some kind of a balance. Um, but I, I must admit, I was, I was quite curious as to how the reader, um, you know, might might engage the book from a, from a, you know, from a readership perspective. Um, so I aim to describe the movements and movements that were also marginalized in academia and in, in black studies. So for example, there was a focus on uprisings at South Carolina State College in the early 1950s that Paulo was involved with. There is a major project around black power and sustainable development in Papua New Guinea that is involved with the 1970s. And he's involved in activism in Cuba, Liberia. I was trying to weave together these narratives that have been typically marginalized uh, to kind of show that we're African diaspora is really closer than we think if we look at individuals like Paulu. And who is Paulu's diaspora? Paulu's diaspora could be the engineers, right? It's, 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 it's the, it could be the DJs, it's the villagers, it's the, you know, it could be the sailors, the fishermen, the folks who work with their hands, um, you know, black men and black women across the world who have been relatively marginalized by scholarship. So that was my ambitious endeavor, um, but it was important to me to not just focus on one individual, particularly, you know, um, you know, someone who I knew um, on, a, on a personal level. This was really a breath of fresh air learning about this man as a scientist and um, how the state saw that as extremely threatening. Uh, white supremacist settler colonial states saw this as extremely threatening, this, this brilliant black man who was a brilliant, brilliant scientist. To fill in a bit of his earlier life, um, could you talk a little bit about Palu in terms of what first interested him in, in science? And then uh, just very briefly, and we'll split this question up, along with that early, uh, those early biographical details, could you sort of help us quantify his brilliance as a scientist? Yeah, um, his, his early interests start with an affinity for ecologies. Um, it's probably before he would have called it ecologies. Uh, he, his mother and father from Nevis and St. Kitts, they migrate to Bermuda um, at the turn of the, the, the 20th century. Um, he's raised in a really agricultural community of Bermuda where culturally, um, you know, 
black people had developed certain sustainable technologies that were really normalized in his life. Um, and even in my life, for example, Bermuda still does not have a central water system. Most of the water is collected uh, from the rain, um, which is purified through limestone that our roofs are made, on, made with. And then the water is, goes into these water tanks. Um, some people do have wells, but Bermuda is known for having developed, or maybe once again, it's the celebrity piece, right? Known in some circles, but not really known in terms of mainstream spaces for development of these roofs and this, this interesting sustainable water system. Apollo would take those kind of ideas wherever he went, um, questions of how to obtain fresh water, how to utilize um, resources in the immediate area. Um, his father, you know, was a mason who worked in a limestone quarry, had his own farm. So he always had this sense of earth and labor. Um, at a very young age, he visits family members who cut sugarcane in Cuba. And as a student of South Carolina studying biology, he's surrounded by cotton fields. Um, he eventually goes to California Institute of Technology where he does some graduate work. Uh, he leaves in 1958 to go to Liberia where he first designs um, his, a, a version of his model water tank. Um, by the end of his life, he writes some nine to 12 manuals on how to build homes from bamboo, as I mentioned, water tanks, um, how to raise a crocodile farm. And for me, this was a challenge, um, you know, coming from a, I, mean, I have a background in engineering, but he left a number of science manuals that, you know, I didn't totally interrogate. Um, but his approach to science was really around sustainability and appropriate technology, which was a major movement um, in, in the 1960s and 1970s and was seen as an alternative via development for several countries in, in the Caribbean, Africa and Oceania. He was very much involved in small island and development states, that movement, which was challenging um, you know, climate change and issues around rising sea levels, um, renewable energy, um, his, so his politics transform into, you know, these other areas of science that are critical, but don't always resonate in the concrete jungles of, you know, the United States or academics who are tethered to, you know, some of these concrete jungles. Um, so his, his approach was very much sustainable development with technology, but he always saw that as political work. For him, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was distinct from politics. And so one of the things I was trying to highlight was that for the Sixth Pan African Congress, this was part of the agenda. Um, technology, science, and the relationship between colonialism and science and ecological issues, like the spread of the desert uh, as, a, as a partly a result of the slave trade and reparations needing to justify or address rather some of these questions of ecologies. Uh, this was also part of Louis Lane which it's a much more popular conversation now, but still very much modernized in terms of what we think about reparations and, and, and black freedom narratives. It's not just Wakanda in the imagined realm. 
um, these are real conversations that Black communities were having for quite, for quite some time. For Palu, you know, California Institute of Technology is a fairly elite institution. Um, and this is coupled with, you know, Palu didn't have the same, uh, he wasn't Huey in the sense of he's, he's not necessarily advocating for armed revolt. He's not even Fanon in that sense. Um, but the state spent quite a bit of resources surveilling this man, it seems like, from what I could tell, because he was so knowledgeable as a scientist and that that scared the shit out of them like a black organizing activist who was also a scientist, um, a very knowledgeable one, offering alternatives uh, to the capitalist development that uh, nations like the U.S. and U.K. wanted to uh, export to their formal colonies. Could you talk a little bit about sort of white supremacy uh within science as Palu saw it? And um, was this surveillance of Palu in part, as I've uh, insinuated, simply because it, they were very scared of a black man who knew his way around science and was offering alternative visions in the places that he visited? There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, if you once again go back to the notion of celebrity, he's definitely well-known in the intelligence civilian documents of the US government, uh, the FBI, State Department. Um, the FBI had over a thousand pages. Um, British intelligence, um, French intelligence documents reference Paulu, particularly in Oceania, uh, Caribbean intelligence from Barbados to Bermuda, most definitely. Uh, Guyana, he shows up quite, quite consistently. Um, but he does have a he does have a politics around um, struggle. It's 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 really Paulo is he's very much in the lane of by any means necessary. And so his approach to black liberation was was very technical. And very, uh, how do I say it, very malleable to the situation in, in hand. So, for example, as a student at South Carolina State, he, the, the Klan repeatedly um, harassed students, their crosses burned around campus. In one occasion, he had students take weapons, rifles from the ROTC building to shoot at the Klan of white supremacists. Uh, in Cuba, he's involved in an anti-Batista demonstration where he's shot um, in his leg. He, he carries those stories with him across the world. Um, and he, he uses that, those stories often as an example of why folks should take a stand however they can. Um, and those stories show up in, in the archives. Um, in Wanawatu, he is deported at the time, it was New Hebrides by the British and French government who were prepared to fly in um, troops from Fiji or Hong Kong to suppress a group of villagers who they thought might, might resist when they arrested Paolo. And he was arrested because they claimed he was using um, sustainable science techniques to build weapons. So, you know, he must have been building a bomb. Um, from natural resources when he was conducting political education, but also doing things like, 
you know, making shoes from leather, extracting coconut oil from coconuts, sugar from sugarcane. Now, if communists had sought to use these techniques to develop weapons, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have said, don't do it. Um, but his approach was guerrilla war in many ways is about chemistry. Um, he certainly rolled with guerrillas when he's in Tanzania, that's who he pars with. Um, but I think, I think you are correct in the sense of it wasn't simply about the fact that he is engaged in science, but what might he use this science for? Um, to the extent that these ecologies might be transformed into weapons, that's a problem. Um, if communities are going to use natural resources for products and not buy the goods from the commercial stores, that's a problem. Um, so I think I think I think you're correct. Um, the harnessing of 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 resources for any means uh, for the use of you know colonized people were seen as a threat by the state. You you said a phrase, and I think it appears in a couple of interviews you do, of science as reparations, and that this was something Palu pursued at at very high level public settings. I think uh, the UN Council, or not a council, but a UN meeting, you know, he sort of explicitly brought up that to former uh, colonized nations, sustainable energy technologies should be provided um, by uh, their former uh, imperialist overlords. I've never heard that phrase before. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Could you unpack a little bit about this idea of sort of uh, black science as black self-reliance, imperialist nations being sort of <laughs> very hesitant of that being a possibility. And as central to this question, um, what does science's reparations mean in, in looking at Palu's legacy and what he wanted for his communities? Um, if we think about, you know, what scholars like Walter Rodney, and there's, there's a ton of scholars who've talked about um, the underdevelopment of Africa and the way Africa's infrastructures were designed to benefit the colonial metropoles, not just from, you know, it's not simply if you're in the Gold Coast, you will learn English, or if you're in Guinea, you will learn French. It's not simply the extraction of resources from those colonies to Europe, but also the way the power lines travel. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about, when Africa goes independent or the Caribbean, are the engineers who ran the colonial tech, tech, the infrastructure from a technical standpoint, are they still of the former colonizers? And if so, those spaces should be decolonized as well. This is Paulo's perspective. This was part of the work that he was actually doing in Kenya, which Kenya is known for its program around Africanization of the civil service. Uh, Paulo in Kenya was rewriting O-levels for high school students around science technology based upon Africa's terrain, and Africa's geographies. Um, I, I mentioned that Six Pack, you know, Six Pack had a, one of the agendas for Six Pack was to design a Pan-African Center of Science and Technology that would be facilitated by African engineers, African engineers across the world who will collectively address problems of ecological, of ecological nature 
uh, collectively. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, one of the one of the main one of the arguments or one of the, the questions was how did colonialism impact Africa from a science and technological perspective? And in addressing, addressing it, for example, the integrated energy systems that were actually products of colonialism that are now, you know, also encouraging, you know, uh, or boosting the carbon footprint, the Western world created that, right? The Western world consumes most of the energy. It's the Western world, I mean, I'm, I'm saying Western world in quotes, probably major um, states like United States, or others who are the real problems in terms of energy, reparations for the black world should include resources to pave a new way, the new energies and more sustainable technologies that don't tether these countries to the colonial metropoles. Um, power was Africa to solar power, uh, even in the 1970s. Um, shouldn't the West or the former enslavers of the African world invest in solar technology or at least give resources so that you know the former colonies can invest in other forms of technology. You know, as much as we're having conversations about reparations just being a simple financial exchange, uh, Paolo was very keen on it. it should be more than that. It should be about what kind of projects could benefit Africa and the African world from a technological standpoint. And African people should put the dollar sign on those projects as opposed to just a finite dollar amount. That's not something about the past, but also about the future. And I do think that that was an intervention um, at, at, for, for its time. We mentioned Wakanda once. Um, you actually brought it up, and, you, uh, and I found that very interesting because it sort of goes into this world we live in now where probably most people, if they thought of black science, would think of people who are sort of trying to get theirs. Um, now, to various degrees, you know, Ben Carson's really about that <laughs> sort of lifestyle. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or, you know, even someone who's willing to work for a monopolistic institute like Google in, in Tinmit Gibru, who became a cause celebrity, but up until that point, you know, was designing extremely power, looking into um, how to regulate and fine-tune extremely powerful AI uh, that God knows what Google wants to do with, but I'm sure it's in the name of profit-seeking. Um, in, in researching Palu's life, where he's a brilliant scientist, he's writing manuals about bamboo, how to make your house out of bamboo. He is um, teaching people how to make bricks. Um, did you get a sense of, of how black science has sort of, and, and if you'd like to problematize that term, that's just off the top of my head, but how, how... Is it fair to say that black power and black science ultimately diverged um, in a way that Paulo would not agree with? And if so, in researching his life, did you come to any conclusions that you could share with us about uh, this question? It's interesting because I think these conversations or this tension extend a much, they're much older conversations um, between black communities, the question of science, and technology. For example, you know, we could look at Booker T. Washington's project with Tuskegee 
from a lens of science technology. Um, we often don't, right? We often pose Du Bois um, and Washington around questions of segregation and identity and, and assimilation. Um, we often approach uh, Washington's work around cotton just from a labor perspective. But if you think more thoroughly, uh, some of Washington's ideas were actually um, would have helped the Black South break away from the cotton industry. Um, Washington was advocating that Black people grow other kinds of crops. And so Tuskegee was a space where, and I'm not saying simply politically, from a technical perspective, which is something also Malcolm X stressed, Black youth need to learn new skills. Um, I referenced, you know, in, in chapter eight, the Black Scholars 1974 special edition was, was titled Black Science. And on one hand, I lamented racism, the exclusion of African-Americans from the world of science and technology, which I felt that created a, a, an attitude of anti-science among Black people. In the Pacific, the question of science was also a question of nuclear testing. And there were politics around you know, France, United States conduct nuclear testing in Oceania because we're colonized. So if we're gonna talk about the environment, we have to also talk about the politics of colonialism because we don't wanna be able to stop them from doing nuclear testing. If, the, if nuclear testing is dangerous for our communities, we'd establish that from a scientific perspective, we need to be independent to politically push them away. These type of questions uh, were critical in Oceania. Paul Lewis, a part of these conversations, the poets, the singers, um, you know, Bob Marley, right, sings about Babylon spaceships sailing a million miles away from the reality of the world's concrete jungles. Marvin Gaye sings about the devastation of the earth's blue skies. Most popular is probably Gil Scott Heron, who chided white's presence on the moon in the midst of his sister's impoverishment. So I think these conversations have, have been there. Um, but I would, I would, you know, going back to your, your initial premise, the possibility of the scientist becoming an agent of the black scientist becoming an agent of imperialism is exactly why Paulo stressed scientists should be politicized, or you know, political education should also include the quote-unquote black scientists. As I mentioned, I was an engineering major at Florida NM University. And, you know, all the major companies um, were on campus seeking interns from Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing. Today, that would be right, Apple and Google. So I think these are critical questions. And I would say, you know, I think there's still, there's still pockets of, 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 scholars, there's still pockets of, of Black communities who look at science from a, a more communal, um, grassroots, liberatory perspective that do exist. They're not on CNN, but they are around on a grassroots roots level um, that are trying to transform how we see science and how, what, we, what we call science, um, you know, even from a pedagogical perspective. This is still a legacy of colonialism, where Africa is not considered science. When you bring up African science, the retort's probably going to be, 
or the notion is simply, well, Africa built the pyramids, Egyptians built the pyramids, and they were black. But the conversation is much broader, much, much broader than that. It's about ecologies, it's about the technologies that Africans brought into the Americas. It's about why Africans were enslaved in some spaces, why the Portuguese sort out the minas, quote unquote, of the mine in the Gold Coast. Uh, you know, why Senegambia was raided because African people, particularly African women, had knowledges of Africa's eco ecologies. Um, you know, the Spanish felt that the Minas had a magical ability to mine for gold. So there are the question of metallurgies, the Fulani and cattle raising, leatherworking. Africans are enslaved also for these skill sets, these technical skill sets that are the foundation of what we call science and technology in the Americas. Um, but that's usually not a problem with discourse when we think about enslavement or African people and identity and culture. Palu's own definition of blackness and diaspora and complexity sometimes put him at odds with his contemporaries. So the example I'd like you to uh, explain to listeners is, is Bruce McInnes, um, who was the secretary of Melbourne's Aborigines Advancement League, uh, came with Palu to the 1970 Congress of African People. And you write, uh, McGinnis's experience reminds us of how centuries of white hegemony, surveillance, colonialism, and miseducation has dislocated black communities physically and conceptually from one another. Could you talk about this um, incident and what, uh, what impact it had on Palu's viewpoint on blackness and, and trans trans global global blackness and this is a hard question but it's it's simple but you never hear it asked why are there so few conversations particularly um in my mind for west papua but but and uh, australia where blackness and indigeneity can be seen as one as and the same um so could you talk about this specific incident and then perhaps broaden it to some more general insights about these questions that Palu was wrestling with in his life of blackness, indigeneity, and uh, identity? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. I, I, I would agree. Um, I think that much of, the, much of the, the global self and also, I mean, the world is, is grappling with a vision of the world that Europe creates and by Europe primarily rich um, white men with power and guns and the rulers and pencils, um, you know, the creation of these categories that we've been stuck with. I mean, the invention of, of, of black, we have to talk about the invention of white. And I think my approach in terms of looking at, looking at the black Pacific was also about showing how these racial classifications and slash ethnic classifications, which are always gendered as well, happen, the overlap, what's happening in the Atlantic is overlapping in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. They're happening simul, the overlapping conversations. They're not just totally, totally distinct. Um, I think that for, in terms of African people, we've been grappling with what black means. Uh, for example, scholar Morris Tate, who phenomenal scholar, uh, I mentioned Joseph Harris. She's a teacher of Joseph Harris, icon of, 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 of black thought um, at Howard University. 
Um, she writes, you know, about the, the Black Pacific, not using those terms, but circa World War II, she talked about the darker peoples of the world, including not only the millions of Negroes in the United States, but the Caribbean and Central South America, but also the inhabitants of Africa, Asia, Malaysia, Polynesia, and Melanesia. Um, you know, Paolo's sense of Blackness is, is drawn from this broader tradition of, of the Black world trying to figure out what it is, who it is, and where it is. And also from a political perspective. Um, I mean, because obviously, you know, one doesn't have to travel to Australia to find Black people who do not, do not identify as being Black. You know, we could find it right in the spaces we find ourselves now. The Bruce McGinnis story I thought was, was fascinating. Uh, Bruce McGinnis was a major Black power activist out of Australia. Um, Australia had a notorious history around race. It's founded on the premise that no humans were present in Australia until the British got there. The concept was called terra nullis, which pretty much relegated indigenous persons to plant life or fauna. Um, at the same time, indigenous persons in Australia who are also culturally diverse um, were largely defined as being black or black fellas. But you also had a large presence of indigenous persons who were forcibly brought to Australia in, in the 19th, late 19th century, the process known as blackbirding. These were largely Melanesian communities from places like Wanawatu, who are now known as the South Sea Islanders. You had the Torres Strait Islanders who occupied the northernest parts of Australia, whose culture is close to Papua New Guinea. Um, you also have communities as south as Tasmania. Now, largely all these names, the names of European explorers from Abdul Tasman, um, you know, Torres, the, the likes, but that, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, what Australia was also known for doing was the separation of children, Aboriginal children from the parents which created um, a whole stolen generation. Um, many kids were put in orphanages. Australia sought to wipe out this population through its own version of whitening. So it, it's not atypical to find persons who may not have looked um, like textbook Black folks in Australia, but that's also not just Australia experience. So Bruce McGinnis finds himself in Australia, I mean, sorry, in Atlanta for the Congress of African Peoples, which was supposed to be a Black Power Conference in Barbados that had been sabotaged by the Barbados, Barbadian Bayesian government, in addition to the British government, US government. So with the support of Mary Baraka, this takes place in Atlanta, Paulu brings a delegation, a Black Australian delegation which includes McGinnis, also people that are like Patsy Kruger, Sol Belair. Um, well, so Bruce McGinnis, the story because Bruce McGinnis, that's a long way of getting to this moment. There was a session 
And Bruce McGinnis is seen as being, you know, just his fairly light skin. He's a fairly light skin person on the streets of Atlanta in 1970. People assume that he's white, he's a little frustrated because he came all this way to identify with black people. So he was a little frustrated. Uh, there's one session where, you know, he lets it all out. You know, he tells the horrors of, of racism in Australia, his personal background. And at the end of his soliloquy, um, someone in the room says, don't worry about it, Bruce. You can always pass as a Puerto Rican. And it said to Bruce from a, you know, from a helpful standpoint, it was, it was not, it was not an insult. You know, it was just a, also, I guess, a highlighting of, you know, there are black people in Puerto Rico who often don't, may not look at quote unquote textbook black people, but clearly identify with black political struggle and are black. Um, you could have, that person probably could have used a ton of examples, um, but they chose Puerto Rico probably because there's political political nationality around black power and support of black power. And Bruce goes off it. He asks the guy off, you know, he crushes him out, says I'm Aboriginal from Australia and sooner you people will figure that out, blah, blah, blah. And he stormed out the room. Um, and while I used it as a, you know, as a story to start, I believe chapter nine, for me, that's that's a, that's not the end of the discussion. That's not the beginning of the discussion. I, I, my perspective was, you know, the white world created these racial terminologies, tore indigenous peoples across from their homelands, um, placed people in geographies that were never meant to be independent states in the first place from an ecological standpoint. And so much of the political building of the world has been rediscovery Black rediscoveries around phenotypes, around ethnicities, around complexions. And so this is one of those learning moments of Black power is a global world, and we should have more, more appreciation for how we show up and what we bring to the table. Um, Bruce continues to be an activist when he returns to Australia. Um, so it's like I said, once again, it's not a, it's not a destination. It's, it's a departure point of a moment. And I think we're still in that moment, you know, um, in terms of race, in terms of nationalism, in terms of blackness, but it's no surprise. It's no surprise. Then Atlantic slave trade took place in slavery, chattel slavery in America took place some 400 years. Um, what, 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 else, what would we expect to happen? Could you tell people a bit about this conversation, even if they're not a specialist, why, what lessons does the Black Pacific today, so some of the conflicts that are still relevant today, um, what does the Black Pacific still have to teach us today? And then could you talk um, just very briefly about where people can find your upcoming book on the Black Pacific? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, we talked a, a good bit about ecologies, and I think it would be critical to look at some of the current conversations around uh, the nuclear-free independent Pacific movement, which it emerges in the 1970s out of Fiji. 
Uh, some of the core leaders were Black Fijian women like Vanessa Griffin, Claire Slater, Amelia Rukutavuna, who um, Griffin is still active in that struggle. Uh, there was some contemporary conversation that have taken place um, that I think, think are critical. And also they overlap with questions around climate change. I think, you know, seeing the banners of Black Lives Matter being raised across cities in Australia um, says a lot about the scope of police brutality and white supremacy. In Australia, Black deaths while in police custody is one of the leading causes of death for Black people in Australia, including Black women. I think the case of West Papua is, is and I do take up some of these issues in, in, in the next book, uh, Pacifica Black will be, will, will be out with NYU Press in the next month. You can find it on, on Amazon, hopefully at a bookstore near you. Um, I talk about West Papua, which is a colony of Indonesia. And West Papua was, was colonized by the Dutch, while on the, the eastern side of the island was colonized initially by Germany. Matter of fact, Germany's first overseas colonies um, is what will be Papua New Guinea. New Guinea and Papua were two separate spaces. In addition to, um, you know, the Dutch holding both Indonesia and West Papua, uh, West Papuans saw themselves as being distinct from Indonesia. After Indonesia received independence, it was granted West Papua and it used the really important conference of Afro-Asian solidarity known as Bangdong uh, to legitimize its claims. So in the book I talk about, and others have talked about this already, um, while Bangdong is seen as a as a cornerstone moment for global self solidarity, my argument is if you look at the Black world from the perspective of the Black Pacific, does it challenge some of our narratives? And I think it does challenge some of our narratives of Bangdong. It doesn't challenge the narrative of Afro Asian solidarity or that project, which is critical. But I think it does raise questions about Bangdong. Um, because when activists from West Papua reached out to African liberation struggles, Caribbean liberation struggles, they were often framed as being anti-Indonesian or colonial puppets of the Dutch. And so the general response was, the world's been blinded by Bangdong and this is why they won't help us. And so, Bangdong, or the case of West Papua and Bangdong becomes a blind spot. Um, Indonesia has been charged with tons of human rights violations. Uh, folks have been sent to exile. Uh, there's been a ton of uprisings over the past number of years. And so, you know, you have folks in exile like Benny Wanda, who is probably one of the more popular individuals who right now is in London, I believe in the UK on the, on the asylum, but it's an ongoing struggle. So in the book, I talk about how West Papuans reached out to the NAACP uh, and other, the black world in the 1950s and 1960s for support. 
Uh, they sent letters to Haile Selassie and Krumah and for support. Eventually, they found help from, from um, Leopold Senghor and they established a base in Senegal. Um, so the book is also about these direct connections with Africa and West Papua. Senegal's probably done the most in terms of a nation state in Africa for West Papua. So, you know, those, those, type of, those type of questions are contemporary, but also very historical. And I think um, if we're serious about, you know, human rights, uh, black internationalism, and contemporary activism, we should turn our dials to listen to the case of West Papua from the perspective of West Papua.